course, you got to love Arkansas and, and this weather, and I, for one, like it because it means I can wear long pants to church and not sweat, so that's always good, because I'm very hot-blooded. But we're starting a new series this, uh, this morning, going through the book of Psalms. We're going to take eight weeks, and we're going to go through the first eight Psalms and see what they have for us, and see... Um, what, we, what the Lord is speaking through them for this community and for each one of us individually. And so before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for, your t- for this time, for your word, that we can open up and know you. Thank you for the book of Psalms, the song book of the Bible, the prayer book of the Bible that we can read and we can see such richness, such historical richness, but also there's such richness that we can apply on a personal level. So Lord, I just pray for this time as we do this, as we open up your book, as we read your word, that you bring it to life in our hearts and our minds, that we can know who you are through it, but also know what we're supposed to do and respond to you through it. Lord, we love you and we seek you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So why the Psalms? Why would we take some time to study the Psalms? There's so many other good Old Testament, New Testament books. Why would we study the Psalms? And I think there's many reasons we to study Psalms. First and foremost, we believe the Psalms, just like all the rest of the Bible, the 66 books are God's Word. They're given to us to read, to understand, to see God, to reflect upon, to be encouraged by. And so why not the Psalms? They're, they're God's Word. We should be studying them. But also we know that there's such a richness in history and how they've been used in worship. First in the Jewish, uh, uh, the Jewish faith and then in Christianity itself that psalms have been used in, as a part of worship service from the start. And in fact, when we, when, uh, when we read the, the word psalm, it's actually just taken from a Greek word that means to pluck, implying that these are songs that were sung along with stringed instruments. And there's some churches that think this is all, these are all the songs we need, that we just need to sing the psalms, and that'd be good for worship. And so we see there's a richness in the psalms for praise and for worship. And when we look at the psalms, we see that they're, they're songs, but also they're prayers, and they're singing praises to God, and there's richness there. And I love how a uh, pastor, theologian, uh, seminary proffer, Prof. Uh, Jim Hamilton puts it when he talks about the Psalms. He says, the Psalms are true history, fulfilled prophecy, and enduring praise. The book of Psalms is a school of prayer, a fountain of truth, and a revelation of God himself. We will not master this book, but oh, that it might master us, becoming the pulse to which our hearts beat and the soil in which our hearts take root. Well, I think that's a pretty good reason to study the Psalms. But we know their psalms are rich, and we know that they've been uh, described as the prayer book of the Bible. Uh, and even uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian and pastor who was executed by Nazis at the end of World War II, he even wrote a small little book called Psalms, their prayer book of the Bible. And he talks about the richness of there and how we're supposed to be praying these things. He says things like the psalms are given to us to this end, that we may learn to pray them in the name of Jesus Christ. And we're supposed to be praying these, that they help us in how we pray and pray to God and praise uh, our Lord. He also says the, the Psalter impregnated the life of early Christianity. Yet more important than all of this is the fact that Jesus died on the cross 
with the words of the Psalter on his lips. Whenever the Psalter is abandoned, an incomparable treasure vanishes from the Christian church, and with its recovery will become unsuspected power. Well, those are just some people, but hopefully you can see, hey, there's good reason to study the Psalms. There's good reason to dig in and see how God has used the Psalms, these prayers, these praises throughout history, and how they're still teaching us and guiding us today. And so let's dive in and see what God has in store for us in our study through the book of Psalms. And let's open up your Bibles if you have them. If you don't, don't worry, it's going to be on the screen, but we're going to start where we should start in Psalm 1. And this is what the psalmist says in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked where it will perish. When we look at the world, it seems like day by day, moment by moment, is becoming more and more divided. There's more camps, there's more groups, there's more interest groups. There's so many divisions going on where people identify them by different things. And so it can be almost hard when you look at the world at large to understand what's going on because there's just so many divisions, a vast variety of identities that people have subscribed to that can even be hard to understand what humanity is is. But the Bible, God, actually offers a different method to understand humanity. For he makes one division into two camps. You are either the righteous who know God, or you are the wicked who do not. That's how the psalm actually talks about humanity, and, and that's how the Bible talks about humanity. Again and again, it says there's only two camps in all of the world. You either know God or you don't. And that he describes, the Bible describes, God describes, and now the psalmist here describes the result, the fruit that comes from being in either camp, of either being the righteous who know God or being in the camp of the wicked who do not know God. It makes it very clear what is the result. And so what can we take from this psalm, Psalm 1, when you read it and say, what does this mean for us? And I just offer you this, that we should take a command, an urging to build a blessed life on the Bible. For this is what the psalmist is kind of saying. He's talking about what it means to be blessed, what it means to be receiving that favor from God, what it means to be one of God's people and the result in their life. And what does that mean? It means you base your life, you organize your life, you ground your life on the word of God. That you don't listen to the world that does not know God. You don't listen to the world that's opposed to God's ways, but rather you follow what God says. You build your life on his word and that we build a blessed life on the Bible. We see this. This is actually a recurring theme throughout all of Scripture about how God's words are true, about how God should be the grounding for our whole life. And the psalmist, when he starts the book of Psalms, it's interesting, when he's starting this book of praise and these books of prayers, he chooses to start with this 
this fundamental piece. Ground your life in the Word of God. Know it. Dwell on it. And if you do, you will be blessed. Or if you are blessed and you know God, you should be living in this way. The psalm starts talking about blessed is the man, the blessed man. The blessed is the man who does these things. And when you read this, I think it's easy when you read it to start thinking about, oh, if someone does what's going to follow, we will then be blessed. We will then have this natural result happening. But I think when you read this in the context of all of Scripture, a more natural way of reading this is, if you are blessed, if you know God, if you know God through Jesus Christ, as we read it as Christians through the lens of Christ, if you have been changed, if you fundamentally have been saved, and now you know you're blessed, and how you know you're saved, and how you know you stand in Christ, then as a result, you live your life in a different fashion. You organize your life in a different fashion. Now you do not listen to the world, but now follow God. And I think that's, this psalm helps us grasp the natural result of those who know God, as we know through the whole Bible, we know God through Jesus Christ. So we read this. We said the, the blessed man. And so the first question that should come in our minds is, what does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to blessed man? I think this can be hard because nowadays we've used this word in so many various ways, not even connected to the faith. People sneeze and we automatically say, bless you, with no understanding of what, that, what we're saying. You order food at a fast food restaurant, chances are around here you have someone say, have a blessed day. What do you mean by that? You do something stupid around here, someone might say, oh, bless your heart. And they're saying, he's not saying something pretty good to you. So what does it mean to be blessed? What is it saying? Blessed is the man who... And so it's interesting that when we look at this word bless or blessed, it's actually a word that can be translated most readily happy. And some of the new translations, the, the Christian Standard Bible do that. They read this like happy is the man who... And so we read this and this, this word means happy. But we read that and we use the word happy in some kind of frivolous ways and, and don't really ground our happiness on, on big things. And so people kind of push back on that with, I think, good reason. And they kind of say, well, no, it, can't, it has to be more than happy. It has to be just more than just a happy as the man who does these things. No, it, has, it, it, it also can mean this bringing favor, that we're favored by God. Because that same word is actually used in the beginning of the Gospels when, when the angel approaches Mary and says, you're favored by God. That's the same word with the same kind of context that you're not just the happy one of God because God is bestowed on this, but there's something else that God is taking notice of you. And so I think we can, we can describe what the blessed man is with the sense that it's a deep joy-filled contentment or joy-filled happiness that comes from finding or receiving favor from God. Is that, is that deep sense of, con, sense of contentment or peace that comes from the fact that God loves us and that we're walking in his ways? It's interesting that the psalmist starts with the blessed man, and when Jesus comes on the scene and in his first sermon, the Sermon of the Mount, what does he start with? Blessed are those. And then he goes into the Beatitudes that are starting from the same kind of place. They're starting from this information of what sort of whole life flourishing that God brings to us when we are walking in his ways and when we know him. 
The psalmist wants us to know, hey, blessed is the person who is in line with God. Blessed is the person who knows God and so now lives as a result of that. Now it should be pretty obvious, this is a desirable state. It's actually, it's, it's the most desirable state for humanity because humanity was made to know God. We were made to be in this status with God, to be known by him, to know him, to be blessed by God. That is how we're made toward the very small little particles of our DNA. But yet sin came in and separated us from God. It caused sin and death. And, and so when sin comes in and it kind of messes us all up and we're longing for this. We're looking for this happiness. We're looking for this blessedness. And humanity is looking for it in all these sort of things. They want fulfillment. They want contentment. They want peace. And they think all these things in the world are going to get it. And so this is the desirable status of humanity. We want to be blessed. And now the psalmist says you can be and you are when you stand in God. When you can stand before God as one of his people walking his ways, you will find that contentment, that joy, that satisfaction. You will be with God as he has made you to be. So we want that and we need it. And we say, what does it look like to be blessed? What is the natural result of a, a blessed man's life? And I think Psalm 1 gives us the answer. It says, build a blessed life on the Bible. Because it starts talking about this blessed man, and he's first described by what he doesn't do. That the blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. The idea is that the blessed man does not live his life in, in alignment with the ways the world opposed to God. It's obviously very, this is parallel statements, right? He does not walk, he does not stand, he does not sit. Describing, using this figurative language that describes the, the direction of a person's life, that, the, that we can describe a person's life by their walk or how they're standing or how they're sitting. And he's saying you do not do that. The general tenor of your life is not to be associated with these people who do not know God. And actually you can even go further and there's a sense of progression here. That you don't stay, uh, walk in the counsel of the wicked. You don't listen to the, the wicked and how they're leading you astray or talking things opposed to God. You don't listen to them because chances are if you listen to them, next thing you know, you will be standing in their ways. That you'll be now walking and living your life in their ways. And chances are, if you find yourself there, you're going to be now sitting in, in the way of the scoffer. You'll be associating and identifying with them. There's this progression here that says, there's a big warning to all of us. Do not even give an ear to the counsel of the wicked because the chances are, if you do, you'll start standing in their ways and then you'll start sitting with the scoffers and that you'll be actually uh, start conforming to these ways that are opposed to God. And it's interesting, the wicked and the sinners and scoffers, these, these kind of titles are used throughout the Bible to describe those who don't believe in God or are in active rebellion against them. And so he's saying, don't even listen to these. I think this is a big warning for us because we are bombarded by so many messages and by so many images and by so many stories that have their root in things that are opposed to God. You can hardly turn on the TV in any form or fashion without seeing something that at its root is telling a story that is based in a worldview that is opposed to God. 
And we say, well, no, I can listen to that. I can filter through that and take the good and, and not, not be influenced by it. I can listen to that because we think we could, can. But I think this is a warning that there's this progression that, yeah, you can listen to that probably and be okay for a little while. But the more you listen, the more influenced you are by the counsel of the wicked, the, the higher the chances are that you'll find yourself standing in their way of life. And then the higher chances are, the next thing you turn around, you're going to be sitting with them, identifying with their view and how they see the world. And so it's a warning not to even give them the time of day. You don't listen to them. You don't listen to them to be influenced by them. When I read this, it is a challenge for all believers in God to examine ourselves and say, where have we allowed the counsel of the wicked to influence us? Where have we allowed the voices of this world that are opposed to God to start influencing how we live life, influencing how we see ourselves, how we see others, how we even see God himself? reflect that if we truly know Christ, if we truly would describe ourselves as those who know God and therefore are blessed, we don't do those things. But rather, we listen to something else. The psalmist says we don't listen to the counsel of the wicked, but rather, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, instead, of, instead of listening to the counsel of the wicked, instead of listening to this world that does not know God, we delight in what God has to say for us. We delight in it. I love that because it's not just saying, hey guys, just do it. No, he said, delight in it. Take pleasure in it. Read the words in God and realize the words of God and realize God is speaking to us that the Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth, who made everything, we can open up the Word of God and know Him and see how He's worked throughout history, see how He loves us, see how He moved heaven and earth to save us. Shouldn't we delight in that? That we should be students of the word because we can open it and we know God through it. We can find pure delight because we actually see who we are, who we were made to be, how we can find fulfillment, how we can have purpose in this life, everything we need. We can see it through the word and how he has laid it out for us. We should delight in it. We delight in that which we love and we should love the word of God. You know, when you fall in love with someone you delight in them, and you want to know more about them. You find yourself just staring in their eyes and saying, I want to know you, or something along those lines. And the same thing is with the Word, with God. When we see His goodness, His grandeur, His love, we should fall in love with Him, and we should want to delight in Him, and we want to know who he is. So we delight in him. And how do we know who he is? We delight in the law of the Lord. We might be tempted to read that the law of the Lord and we think, oh, that's talking about books like Leviticus. 
with all the rules and regulations. But this is really shorthand because of how the Bible talks about itself. This is shorthand talking about the whole of God's revealed revelation to humanity. That's redundant. But the whole way in which God reveals himself through his written word, that is what it's talking about. That is what we delight in. It's not just like the Ten Commandments and the things like that. No, this is all of the history of how God has delivered his people and how he gives instructions and resulting of that all get laid out for us to take and to receive it and to know it. It is talking about the Bible. That when the, the psalmist wrote this, he's looking back upon uh, parts of the Old Testament, the Torah, but when we read this and knowing the fulfillment that's going to come and knowing who Jesus Christ is and knowing that all that pointed to him and that found fulfillment in him and knowing that the New Testament kind of flows out of his life and what he's done for us, we can read this in light of the whole Bible, the revealed word of God. We can take it and we can delight in it. That's telling us to love how God has revealed himself again and again through his word. And we don't just delight in it. It says, and on his law, he meditates day and night. That word meditate is actually a Hebrew verb that points to muttering or musing. And so when you apply it to this, this, this psalm and the and thing, it generates this mental picture of a guy going around reciting the words of God to himself as he continually contemplates them. As he continually thinks about them, he's reciting to them, to himself. He's, he's reminding himself of the truth of who God is. He's reminding himself of what he's done. He's reminding himself and muttering and musing about these great words of God and how God has saved him and has moved to him. And it's so funny, we can read these words about how he meditates them day and night. There's other passages in the Bible that kind of highlight the responsibility of those who know God and to be in his word. We, we might think of Joshua 1.8, where it says, This book of the law should not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. That sounds familiar. So that you be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will, be, will have good success. The people of God actually meditate on the Word of God. They, they are grounded in how they know God because the God has revealed through Himself through the Word. Then we go back to Deuteronomy 6. In 6 and 7, it says, And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you uh, sit in your house. And you will walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise, it seems almost like a paralyzed, a parallel statement of don't walk and sit with these people who don't know me, but rather you walk, you sit, and you meditate on the words of God. It should encompass your whole life. That you talk to him with your kids. You talk to him with your coworkers. As you go about your life, as you walk upon the ways, you're meditating on these things because you know in them we know God. You know in them we see how God loves us and we know in them that we see God's instruction on how we should follow him. And so we see it continually we're supposed to be basing our life on the word of God. And this is not just an Old Testament thing, because when we take it to the New Testament, we see that common refrain again and again, and it's find its culmination in Jesus. And John, when he says, hey, you search the words of God diligently because you think you can find eternal life in them, but they testify to me. 
He's saying you find, they find fulfillment in me is that when we know that when we read the word of God, we actually see Jesus and how he saves us and how he lived for us and how he died for us and how he rose again for us and how he's coming again for us. And we see the whole, whole encompassing gospel when we search the words of God, which is why Paul can write in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that all scripture is God-breathed. And useful for correcting, tra- uh, <laughs> now I'm messing up, is useful for, help me out here, correcting, teaching, reproof, training, and righteousness. I missed one. It's okay. But why? So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we see that truth that the Word of God is supposed to be dwelling in us richly. Because we know God through it. That we build a blessed life on the Bible. Again, this calls us to examine ourselves, our levels of delight in the Word, examine yourself starting your habits of being in the Word. That we don't cause guilt trips to get in way of how we've messed up in the past where we haven't been as diligent as we should, but we, we cover a love of knowing God through his word and seek to invest in it and be in it. I love the, uh, there's this quote I came across about the power of reflection. This is from a commentator in the Psalms. He says, the power of reflection chiefly distinguishes a man from a brute. The habit of reflection chiefly distinguishes a wise man from a fool. Pious reflection on God's word greatly distinguishes a saint from a sinner. Without meditation, grace neither never fries. Prayer languishes. Praise is dull and religious duties unprofitable. Well, that because it reminds us that it comes, all these things of the Christian life come from knowing who God is through his word having it saturate our lives so we can respond to who he is. We build a blessed life on the Bible. The psalmist then presents this word picture of the difference between those who know God and those who don't know God. The difference between those who find life in the words of God and those who are looking for it somewhere else. This is word picture of the person who knows the word of God, who knows God and is, is, is meditating. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. We see this rich imagery of life. That if you know God, if you're blessed by God, if, you, if you're in his word, you, you are one of God's, you have this rich imagery of life. This is you. You're thriving. That the word of God is those streams of water that give you life. And because of that, you'll produce fruit in its season, meaning at the right time, fruit will be growing in you, showing that you are God's. It will keep your leaves from withering when everyone else doesn't have hope when everyone else cannot, can't keep going. We can keep going because we don't wither because we are fed by the streams of the Word of God. This great word picture, this imagery of life itself being in God, but it's contrasted with those who do not. Not so the wicked. They don't have life. They're chaff. Dead particles of plants that are just blown away by the wind. This imagery is rich because it shows us the, the, the purpose and the, the, 
the result, if you want to say, or that shows us what we're made for, that we're made to thrive. We're made to be to thriving people with God. And you, know, you can talk, you see these, these trees planted by streams of water. It almost even brings up images of that perfect garden that God made in Eden and how that was the, the purpose of humanity to be planted with these trees and it was fed by these four rivers and it was this richness where people dwelled with God and walked with God and that's what it was made to be. But yet... That is not where we find ourselves now, and so it's almost this promise of, of a reversal that we can get back into that sort of life. We can have that sort of blessings. We can have that relationship with God if we know God through His Word, that we can be thriving like we were made to be back then, and that we, we find that fulfillment as we are abiding in that true vine, Jesus Christ, as He's bringing back the Word into our life again and again, and we know Him this rich imagery of life that we see and we can see as a result of knowing who God is and walking in Him. But we also look and see those who do not know Him and they are described as being dead, chaff, blown away by the wind. It's a contrast of alive versus dead, planted versus blown away, unwilted versus withered, fruitful versus barren and the contrast could not be more vivid of what happens if you know god versus when you don't know god and i think when the 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 psalm finishes up in these last two verses of five and six it heightens that contrast of of the wicked cannot even stand in judgment because they're being judged they'll be they'll be bowing down and they'll be they'll be under the weight of that judgment and they won't be part of the congregation of righteous that they cannot even be part of God's people. Why? Because God is coming and He's judging those who do not know Him, do not follow Him, that He's setting all things right. And this image should evoke some responsiveness when we see this vividness of the, 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 the tree as well as the chaff, as well as the judgment that's coming and the congregation of righteousness. And it should evoke some responses in us when we see this big contrast for those who know God and who don't. How does it offer what I think we should feel? Maybe you feel something different, but I think we should feel when we read this, we rejoice that we're alive in Christ. That when we read this, knowing that we stand in Christ, we read this and say, that is me. That is who I am. I have that life. I'm fundamentally different. I have now been blessed in ways I cannot even comprehend because He loves me. And so we can rejoice in that. We rejoice in that, that we know that we are fed by a stream of water that gives us eternal life, that, that never abates, and this is Jesus Christ. We can rejoice in that. And now because of this new life, we should be this person who is studying His Word, who meditates on it, who knows it, because that's how we know Jesus and what He has called us to. We rejoice in this. But it also causes, I think, to respond that we repent when we have failed because we know we fail so often. We repent when we have turned away from His Word and sought to live like our own. We repent when we don't really base our life on His Word, when we think we know better. We repent knowing that He welcomes us back. And we, we, in that repenting, we actually start proclaiming to others of how it's better to know Christ, better to know God than it's not. And we start proclaiming the truth of who He is, that they can truly know Him through His Word and come to know Him and so also be that person who is blessed in a relationship with God. Because we're called to build that blessed life on the Bible. 
That's what we're called to do when we read this. This is us talking to us, saying, ground your life on the Word of God. When you think about how do we do this, what does this mean practically? It's interesting because we're so tempted to turn this into a work. We're so tempted to read a passage like this. Or maybe I'm just tempted because I want to do it myself. And I read this passage and I say, oh, to be blessed, to have God, to have Him love me, I must do this. I must know His Word. And I must know it well. And boy, did I mess up because I can't even recite 2 Timothy 3.16. I must know it. I must dwell in it. It must embody me. But I don't do it. I don't do it. And I can't do it perfectly. And I, I think sometimes we're, we're tempted to turn this into a work, and when we turn it into a work, it becomes dead, because that's not what it's saying. It's saying that those who know God naturally live in this way, and actually I would argue something more that it's saying. It's actually pointing to the one who did do this perfectly. That our hope is not that we can do it. Our hope is there is someone who came who was the blessed man, who did not listen to the counsel of wicked, who did meditate on the word day and night, who did everything he was required to do and lived a perfect life. And that is where our hope is found. Our hope is not found in doing this perfectly. Our hope is to look towards and have faith in Jesus Christ, who did this perfectly, who reigns forever and gives us that life. And when we look at that, we can be encouraged and say, that is not who I am, but now I can look to him and try and strive through the life he's given me, through the power he's given me by the Holy Spirit to live like he lived and to base my life on his words and base my life on the words of the Bible. And so we look to him and that is where we find hope. And that's where we find how we're supposed to apply this to our lives. And that's just not reading this back through a Christological kind of lens back into Psalm because actually there is really good evidence to support that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are part of one kind of unit. If you read ahead, Psalm 2 talks about the Lord's anointed. And if that's true, if these two Psalms are supposed to be combined together, when it says, blessed is the man, it's not talking about you or me talking about Jesus Christ, the Lord's anointed, who's coming, and that he did this perfectly, that he did this. He is the blessed man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, who does not stand in the way of sinners, who does not sit in the seat of scoffers, but he delights on the word of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And if we read our Bibles, we see how true that is because our hope is, on the, is, is, is in the one who came and declared to the Pharisees, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Our hope is in the one who can look at the Pharisees and say, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the one who sent me, the will of him who sent me. And so we see how Jesus did this. He lived this. He lived it for us so that we can have hope. The man who, com, who, com, who went to battle with the devil with the word of the Lord on his lips did this perfectly so now we can read this and see our hope in him knowing that now we can apply these truths to our life and know that we are both supposed to build our life on the word of God and so be one of his. So when we read this, 
finding our ultimate hope in Christ, what does this mean for our lives? Well, I'll just offer you a few applications which there are many that we kind of have looked at. Number one, I think we should do is you watch the counts who you walk in. How easy it is to be led astray. How easy it is to give your ear to things that are not based on God's Word, to things that are opposed to God's uh, way of thinking. How easy it is to let things seep into our minds. That we watch that. We're on guard against it. That you set those rails up. And it's not in a legalistic fashion, but it's in the fashion of responding with who God is and what He's done for our lives. And we want to follow Him, and we want to be conformed more and more into the image of His Son. And so we seek not to listen to the ways of the world opposed to God, but we seek to fill our lives with the truth of the Word and base our lives on that. I think we also are called to delight in our Savior this, this psalm brings in the fact that we're supposed to delight in the law of, the, of God, delight in the word of the Lord, but we delight in our Savior because that is the fulfillment of the law. That's the fulfillment of the word, that we delight in Him and we base our whole life in this delight. We base our whole life in the fact that He has saved us, not because of what we've done, but because of His love. And so we base our life in this delight and we delight and we should find more and more delight in our God. That we pick up our, our Bible and we can read the Bible no matter where we are in the word and we should to be able to delight in, the, in our Savior. Delight in the one who saves us. Delight in the one who has fulfilled all that we read. Which goes into my next urging, maybe application point is, we should all be students of Scripture. We live in an unprecedented time of access to the Word of God. I have a whole shelf in my office of Bibles. Everyone here probably has an electronic version on their phone that's in their pocket. You can go online and find free versions again and again. You can listen to it as it talks to you. You can ride around the car as it speaks to you. In so many languages, it's there for us. We have an unprecedented access to the Word. Let's make use of that. Let's open up the Word and become students of it. Let's study the Scriptures diligently, seeing if we truly can see the things that are spoken on Sunday morning there in the Word. Let's go to our small groups or to Bible studies prepared to dive deep into what the Word is saying so that it can grow in us and change us from the inside out as we become more and more like Christ as the Holy Spirit applies the Word of God to us and makes us who we're supposed to be. Let's be students of the Word. Studying diligently because we truly believe in them we'll find Christ and Christ is the one who saves us. But in all of these, what we're striving to do is to build a blessed life on the Bible. That it's our foundation. It is our rock. It is what won't be moved is how we can see and understand and relate to and serve God when we build our life on His Word. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for the ability that we can read, that we can process, that we can understand how You have communicated to us. Lord, I just thank You so much for Your Word that we